Hey everybody, this is Yochaved. Thank you so much for joining me for this very special episode of A Deeper Conversation. You are about to hear a conversation I had with my mother and my daughter, and the idea behind the episode was to talk three generations of Jewish women about things that have changed and, of course, things that haven't. Now, my mother was actually my very first guest that I had on this podcast. If you go back and you want to listen to it, if you haven't listened to it already, it's episode 12. My mother is Mrs. Tversky Gan. She is a therapist. She supervises therapists. She's an incredible woman. And like I said, just go back and listen to the one that I did with her, but you'll hear it in this episode as well. My daughter, Mrs. Yael Goldberg, is a school psychologist. She is a young mother. She and her husband just left Kolal, and my son-in-law has taken a job as a Rebbe in a Masifta, so they are starting a new path. And that's just sort of to give you sort of a sense of where she is in life and you know where we all are sort of when we went into this conversation. A really funny thing happened, actually, as we were getting it set up. So my daughter was at my house, so she was live with me in studio, and we arranged that my mother was going to come in via Zoom link, and I had sent my mom the Zoom link, and my daughter and I were sitting in the studio, and my mother was struggling, and she couldn't figure out how to get on, and it was a problem, and I picked up my phone to f- figure out how to tell her to get onto the, onto the call so we could record. And my daughter immediately didn't need to check anything. She's like, Bobby, just press the button on your screen. You'll see it right there. And it was just a really funny moment of how things have changed where my mother was struggling with technology. I sort of knew my way around it a little bit, but I was a little bit uncertain. And my daughter, it was just so intuitive for her. She knew exactly what buttons to press, exactly what my mother was struggling with. And we were just sort of laughing before the podcast even got started on how things have changed. And of course, technology is one of the things that we talk about at this episode, but we talked about a lot of things and still so many things that I wanted to talk about that we didn't get to. So maybe there will be a part two. Um, if you get to the end of this podcast, I have a few thoughts actually to share that are reflecting on after we finish that I'd love to share with you. And I'll meet you back at the end of this episode. But of course, before we get started, as always, um, I would like to ask for your help and support in keeping this podcast going. You can sponsor an episode. Um, you can email me at a deeper conversation one two zero at gmail.com to sponsor an episode. That is also, of course, the place to reach me if you have comments, questions, or feedback. Um, you could also follow me on Instagram at a deeper conversation. If you're interested in becoming a monthly subscriber, even a small donation every month really helps to keep the podcast going. Go to maverickpodcasting.com, click on the link for my page. You'll see a little heart with like a money symbol and scroll down to my name and you can donate monthly there. Thank you all so much for listening. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Thank you for joining me. This is A Deeper Conversation, a podcast for Jewish women. So I am thrilled to announce that I am starting, this is the first episode in a new series where I talk to an extraordinary Jewish woman. This episode is called A Deeper Conversation with My Mother because, of course, of all the Jewish women, the extraordinary Jewish woman, the first one that I would want to speak to is my mother. So the way this started was in our tefillah series, we were up to the bracha of Shalom Asani Isha, where men thank Hashem for not making them a woman. Women say, of course, Yasani Kirtzono, which is the bracha that says, thank you for Hashem for creating me according to your will. And when I was thinking about talking about that bracha, which I hope to do in a later podcast, um, I really thought of having my mother on to talk about that because my mother is very strong. She's very intellectual. She's very capable. She's a talented professional, um, but never seemed to have any conflict in her role of being a Jewish woman, despite all her other accomplishments that are maybe not as traditionally thought of as um, 
things that Jewish women are taught to excel at, certainly from a traditional perspective. Um, and as we were talking about that, it sort of evolved to this idea of having a conversation with my mother and then expanding it to other Jewish women, because really all Jewish women are extraordinary. Um, we really hold the nation on our backs in a lot of ways and perpetuate the generations. And there's not really a lot of places where we can look to for Jewish role models, uh, female role models, that is. Anyways, there's certainly a lot of books about Gedolim and they're very, very inspiring, but it's a little bit harder to find books about inspiring Jewish women. There's a few out there and they're great, but I thought, wouldn't this be a great place to talk to extraordinary women, to open up some conversations that maybe we aren't able to have as much in a more co-ed forum. Like I said, this is a podcast for Jewish women. So without further ado, I would like to welcome my mother to the podcast. Hi, mom. Hi. I agree with you. Jewish women are extraordinary. Right. Um, Agreed. So um, mom, from from perspective of the Torah, they're also extraordinary. (laughs) Right. Um, so mom, maybe you could just introduce, introduce yourself by name since as your daughter, I can't say your name. I want everybody to know who you are. I'm Rivka Torsky Gans. That's my professional, uh, name. And, um, I'm Yochevet's mother and, um, a licensed marriage and family therapist and approved supervisor. I've been working in the field for over a quarter of a century. Okay, so let's maybe go back to the beginning, and um, who knows, maybe I will find out things during this conversation that I didn't even know, but I do know that you were born in the 50s in Denver, Colorado, Um, and I can't imagine what it was like to grow up then. I think about, like, I have an eight-year-old daughter who has 75-something girls in her grade from girls. They all wear their uniforms. They go to school every day, to Basiakov school. What was it like as a little Jewish girl growing up in Denver, Colorado? It was very different, for sure. Um, I was the only girl in Denver whose mother wore shaitel and whose father wore strimal, for sure. It was also a time where the nation was recovering from people. The Jewish world was recovering from the war. So you saw people with numbers on their arm everywhere. And very few people had grandparents. I was one of the fortunate ones who had grandparents on both sides. So... your parents both came to America. Your parents were both born in Europe, but came to America before the war. Right, very young. And I had grandparents in Milwaukee and grandparents in Pittsburgh. And I think that gave me a sort of anchor that most people did not have then. And I had a tremendous sense of pride about the fact that my father was a Rav and had a Strimal and that we had this legacy and that I knew my grandparents and that my mother was a Rebbitson and was so beloved in the community, even though we were so different, there was nobody like us. And I grew up not being able to ever go to a friend's birthday party. I mean, I always went to friend's birthday parties, but I couldn't eat anything. I had to bring my, my sandwich in a baggie, you know? So (laughs) that was a little bit, and I used to look, very longingly at the white bread that my friends ate, the star bread that was supposedly kosher, but I couldn't eat it. You know, we had flown in bread from, from Chicago, from the bakery. It was always two days old and stale, you know? Wow. So did you not have any friends that were from like any girls your age? I did. We had a small class. There were a few friends that were from, of course, their mothers didn't cover their hair. Mm -hmm. And, my father had a rule, even though there were a handful of families who really kept kosher, who were really, you know, 
you know, trustworthy. But he felt if I ate at their houses and then I didn't eat at other people's houses, they would be insulted. So the rule had to be across the board. So I couldn't even eat at my friends who really kept kosher. Oh, wow. So was, um, was that ever something that you and your siblings rebelled at or was just that's the way it was? No, we had such pride at at being who we were. I mean, as a kid, I wanted to, but I didn't. I just grew up with that's the way it was. I wasn't, uh, you know. So I you know this is going to sound a little silly, like, you know, back in the day when there were horses. But like what type of technology was in your home then? Like, were there TVs yet? Were that, no. was that in the TVs, home TVs came out at the end of the 50s. My father was very opposed to it. So when we didn't have a TV. My father got a little portable TV during the Six Day War just so he could mm-hmm. keep appraised of the Six Day War. Uh, friends got some TVs and I remember being allowed to go to watch Leave it to Beaver or something once in a while. We did not mm-hmm. have any technology. We had dial phones. Mm-hmm. Um, we had radios, no technology. Mm-hmm. We just played well, outside, rode our bikes, you know, uh, probably skated, right? totally unsupervised, <laughs> totally just out there playing paper dolls, creative things. Mm-hmm. We didn't spend time with t- reading, drawing, doing paint by color, uh, you know, paint by number. That was a big thing we used to do sometime on Sundays. We did not do technology. So as far as Jewish education, um, I'm wondering about this because I think of like, like I said, my kid's school, my kids, you know, my daughter goes to Beis Yaakov school where there's like so much structured education. You know, she has Idios Klaliyos packets that she needs to memorize. And there's all these initiative and Midos, you know, that's so there's so much um, educational material available for from schools now. And I guess I wonder like how, what was it like? just from an educational perspective, growing up in Denver at that time? We had a Hill Academy, which my father and some community members started. My older sisters went to public school until sixth grade. I have two older sisters. And then they went to Basiakov of Williamsburg because there was no place. My father didn't want them post-bat mitzvah to go to a public school, obviously. I was in one of the older classes of of the um, Hebrew, of the Hill Academy. Uh, we had co-ed classes. Mm-hmm. It was a regular day school. We didn't go to school till we were five. We didn't start to read till we were six, <laughs> surprisingly. Well, I, yes. I, I wish that we would kind of go back to that, actually, because I think that probably a lot of kids would benefit from not being taught to read so early. But that's maybe a topic for a different time. Yeah. But my primary so, education was in the home. It wasn't especially my Jewish education because we had people from all over, all different kinds of walks of life coming into our house. Our house was one of learning. My father was a posake, so Shilas were asked all the time. They were always for him covering the tables, and we participated, and my father loved questions. The, the, mm-hmm. Like his eyes used to gleam when you asked a good question, and then he would say, come, let's look it up. And let's, you know, so that's really how I learned. I learned much more at home. Our Sadarim were the most, exciting, informative learning experiences. So I grew up loving to learn more because of that than anything else. I wouldn't say I had such a great education in the academy. I was as good as it could be at the time. I wasn't mm-hmm. such a, a student at the time, unless I really loved the teacher, then I was okay. But mm-hmm. I, I just loved to learn because that was the atmosphere that permeated our home. So, so maybe you could talk a little bit about your home just because, um, I mean, I know this, our listeners won't, but your father was really a trailblazer in that he was in the Kirov business long before it was a thing. So back when you were growing up, you really had a Kirov, uh, lived in a Kirov environment. 
um, which was probably very unusual, especially in the 50s and 60s. So, I mean, what was that like? It was very exciting and interesting. There was never a dull moment. As I said, we had an open house. People were in and out all the time. We had big Shabbos tables. And again, in those days in Denver, we did everything ourselves. You could hardly buy kosher food. My parents had a huge commercial KitchenAid. My father used to make the dough. They were a team. He used to help prepare in some ways for Shabbos. My mother flechted the challah. And I remember sometimes her back would kill her because she had to make so many challahs every Shabbos. No bakery, no kosher prepared food of any kind. And um, yeah, people... My father was in the kitchen helping on Erev uh, Shabbos until 12. He made the chopped liver. He did some, he smoked meat and he was into that stuff before it was fashionable. But I'll never forget, come chatzos, he, we were pretty much finished. A few last minute things, he would go get ready for Shabbos and come down in his Shabbos begadim, radiating, literally radiating the beauty of Shabbos to come. Like he had that intense charisma and ability to transmit that with every yontif. So that's one of my early memories of Shabbos. Uh, interesting anecdote. We never used to figure out how people who traveled to the West Coast used to find our number because we would often get calls like Thursday. Oh, we're going to be in Denver for Shabbos. Can we come? My parents always said yes. Mm-hmm. And we had many locals who were, you know, of all kinds, stripes of Judaism. My father was kind of the rabbi of the city. And when my parents went to Israel in 67, I believe it was, or maybe it was earlier than that, they went even before the war. It was a little booklet that was given out on El Al, was El Al, whatever airline they traveled, that had the list on the way back, I think it was kosher restaurants in the United States. There weren't too many. And for Denver, they listed the Tversky home. Really? So yeah, <laughs> it was very nice of your mother. <laughs> so my mother, and she said we got a five star rating. They had stars. <laughs> so I never heard that, that story. That's yeah, really so fun. that that solved the mystery. But not just for people coming out of town. We had people from all walks of life, backgrounds, hippies showing up from you know from communes. I'll never forget one Friday night. There was a knock on the door, and I went to answer the door, and there was this group of hippies. And they said, we want to ask the rabbi about Kabbalah. So we were in the middle of the Shabbos meal. So I escorted them. We had a split-level house, and downstairs like was a big family room. Mm-hmm. And I escorted them downstairs. They said, come in. I went to tell my father a bunch of strange-looking people that just knocked on our door. So my father excused himself from the table and went down to talk to the people. And he was very warm and friendly. He was very personable. And then at the end, he asked them what their names were. And he realized that among that group, there were two of them that were Jewish. And he asked them you know, who they were. And I think he may have asked them what their phone numbers were. He had a photographic memory, my father. So mm-hmm. the group left. After Shabbos, he contacted the two fr- Jewish, there nobody was from there, members. He invited them to come for a Shabbos. Eventually, both of them became from. Wow. And that was, yeah. But we had all kinds of interesting people popping in and out of our house like that. Especially imagine at that time in the 50s and 60s, people were, like you said, post-war, people were exploring certainly like in a um, in a cultural way. You know, things were moving in a way away from tradition at that time. Well, they were, yes and no. But in the 60s especially, there was a real, you know, yen for for 
mm-hmm. questing, you know, whatever mm-hmm. questing was. Right. So there were Jews that were joining communes and becoming hippies who felt a void. And if they got touched by, the, you know, a spark, they really came back to Judaism much more than today's population, which is much more alienated. We were doing Kiev in Boston for 14 years until two years that's, ago. That's and, you, you and daddy just from right. my knows, like until recently lived in Boston for 14 years. Right. In Cambridge, we were dealing with college students at Harvard and MIT. Mm-hmm. Towards the end of our, our tenure there, we and other of workers who worked in college campuses found it much, much harder to reach kids than ever before. They're just not open to it. But in the 60s, people were open to exploring and learning, wanted to know the meaning of life. So if you got Jewish kids who are interested, they were the ones anyway that came around interested now for pretty easy to reach, or relatively easy to reach. Right. They were open. So what, what do you think the difference is between then and now? Is it technology? Is it like, what is it? What's the change? It's a whole cultural shift. It, it, that, that's like an hours long conversation <laughs> itself. Right. You know. Yeah. Apathy, maybe a certain amount of. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So let's go back a little bit. So you went to high school actually, um, coincidentally ironically in cleveland where i live now the only thing you did you go to high school for all four years in cleveland yes right i did 9 through 12th grade the only thing that i knew about cleveland before i moved here was that my mother went to high school here so that was my only association and you were here and then um it probably wasn't so much the tradition you didn't go to seminary that wasn't a thing then right that girls went it to wasn't Israel. a thing it was just becoming a thing mm-hmm. um I would say maybe five girls out of a class of 14 that I had 14 girls in my class. And I don't know if you can imagine that Mm -hmm. we were one of the smaller classes at the time, but most of the classes were pretty small. Mm -hmm. I very Mm -hmm. much wanted to go home and be with my parents and with my father. And I wanted to spend those years, you know, before I got married in my home and learning with my father Mm -hmm. and going to his classes and things like that. It was I was away for five years. I'd gone one year to New York <clears throat> before I went to Cleveland. So I I really wanted to go home. I didn't. And I really felt that the best teacher I could have at that point was my father. So I okay. went home. So you I went, went to the University of Denver. Yeah. And you studied English literature. Right. That was um, my first love. So, so what was that like? So this, we're talking about the late sixties now, you know, I asked you about being a young girl, you know, being the only from girl or one of the only from girls in a world that didn't have the cultural structure that we have now that supports, you know, from lifestyle, but certainly in a college on, I don't know, you wouldn't really call is Denver the Midwest, I guess, West coast. What is Denver? Yeah, it's, I guess (laughs) not quite West coast, but it's, you know, Western America. Right. Yeah. But like being in college in the 60s as a from woman, what was that like? My father felt that in a way it's better for a from person to go to college, to a secular college, than I, my alternative was to go to Stern. He felt that right. if I went to a secular college, it's a very clear me and you. I'm not going to be influenced. I'm not part of the group. I didn't live in a dorm. I lived at home. I could ask him any Shilas or any questions I had. I had a good, strong support system background, and I just went for classes. I wasn't part of the social scene at all. 
I, mm-hmm. you know, was casually friendly with people, but I didn't actually develop two fairly good friends. I was in an honors program in the English department. So we had a lot of seminars. So I did make friends with two girls, but not, not the kind of thing that, we went to each other's houses. I invited them both to my house for a Shabbos meal because we did that. But I didn't go mm-hmm. to their house ever. We didn't spend time after school. We were in classes. Once in a while, we'd go have a cup of coffee in the student union together. But it was very much, I didn't need to be part of the social scene. I didn't want to be part of the social scene. I went, I went and I loved my classes. And that my social life was really my community and my home and my sisters. And I didn't really mix at all socially. Mm-hmm. So you weren't, did you find yourself intrigued at all by, let's say, some of the social movements that were going on at the time, feminism, stuff like that? Or was it, again, just like the kind of thing that, you know, you were just going for the degree? You were going I to I was learn. going for the degree. It was interesting. You had mm-hmm. interesting people coming to campus to talk. I rarely went to them. I remember once going to hear Joan Baez talking about being a an objective, a conscientious objector. But I usually didn't go to things Vietnam? like that. Yeah, that what she was objecting to. <laughs> yeah, that's what she was objecting to. So I went. I hear. I just happened to be probably there between classes. Mm-hmm. So I um, mm. I went to her speak, but I was not really too influenced by it. Everybody read about it, heard about it. It was you know coming of age for women starting to really become recognized as a serious intellectuals, professionals trying to break the glass ceiling and be seen as equal, equal work, equal pay, like that kind of stuff. And I, you know, to me, that made sense. But I wasn't like part of the movement at all. It wasn't. Um, right. Right. And and so, OK, so I mean, I think one other thing about that, I never yeah. felt the need to be part of the movement because I never felt in any way that women were second class citizens, were seen by the Torah as being in any way secondary to men. My father mm-hmm. certainly never communicated. He communicated how women are primary in Torah. And we see many examples. This is not a class. I won't go into it. So I never felt the need to like. So just out of curiosity, though, you said in the beginning that you were one of the few people who had grandparents. You had your grandparents who were very, very European um, in Pittsburgh um, and your grandparents in Milwaukee. What was their relationship like with each other? Like, what did you learn about, I guess, female roles from your grandmothers? It's interesting. My grandmother from Milwaukee, who was the oldest daughter of the, the Baba Rebbe Revencion in Europe, was extremely brilliant and intellectual. She was brilliant. And she was very, she and my grandfather were partners in Kiev. Then when they came in like the 20s and mm-hmm. they went to Milwaukee and they, went to a not pretty not from community and they built up that community as well, which my uncle Michal then took over and they were a team like that company for Shabbos. My grandfather wasn't as open and public as my father, but he was there as a resource for the whole town. Everybody considered him the rabbi. He was a very loved person, but she was very much part of the team. She had the women. She talked she didn't give official shiur, but people came to talk to her she was always reading something. She had taught herself French and German during World War One when they had, had to leave Poland. And they were in Austria, I believe. And she had Kafka on her table as long as a whole night table of a farm that she was always reading and, and always talking about. So she was wow. very 
um, intellectual. And my grandfather, she was the representative, he was the rabbi, and they were a team. And I mm-hmm. saw that in my grandparents from Pittsburgh's house too, but in a different way because they were Satmar, more Satmar oriented. He was the Pittsburgh Rebbe from Nidverna. And they had, my grandmother ran the house. They had a third floor with seven bedrooms. And post-war, I grew up in that house. There were always Mishulacham there. They had an open house. And during the war, there were many people who went through the war, who came very wounded and injured emotionally and scarred, of course. They had no families. And they would travel the country and go to different places and raise money to support themselves. And my grandfather always had, every room was filled with Mishulacham. And he had a table they ate there. They were Shabbos. They were there all week. And my grandmother had one help, Sophie, who could speak Yiddish and would tell everybody to stay out of her kitchen because they were trafing it up. Mm-hmm. And they ran the kitchen to really, you know, constantly feed these people. But the uh-huh. one thing they did do is because they were sovereign in those days, the women ate in the kitchen and the men ate in the dining room, even on Shabbos. Really? My grandmother would go in to hear my grandfather make kiddush. So when we were there once in a while, we would go ourselves as kids. So we'd eat with my grandmother in the kitchen. But when my father came and my mother, so my father insisted he would not eat without his family at the table. So my grandfather let down his guard and he let us all eat in the dining room because otherwise my father was going to join us in the kitchen. <laughs> so... Um, Wow, it must have been. But he had great respect. He, my grandfather, Pittsburgh, had great respect for my grandmother, and she really worked night and day to keep, you know, this going. Right, it must have been so physically demanding. Very, very. Without think about like feeding all those people. Maybe Pittsburgh had more than Denver as far as kosher food, but still, no, no, nothing. Really, nothing. Yeah, everything was made in the house. Wow. Certainly in the 30s and 40s, but even when I remember in the 50s and 60s, there was, and my grandfather was very, very uh, machmer in that way. He didn't eat anything that wasn't made in the house right. so, or have anything on the table that was not made in the house. Wow. Okay. So, so let's go back to you finish college and then you go to New York, right? You became an English teacher. Right. And um, interestingly, you, well, you sort of married a Hasidish boy, but not really. Right. Not at right. all. Right. So, you can't, you couldn't count just, he came from a family who came from Europe, but when his parents came over, they did not keep up with the Lavush or anything. They kind of Americanized, they were from, but they Americanized. And he went to Lisbeth Yeshiva, so he was not at all Hasidish at all. No orientation, no exposure even really too much to Hasidim, other than when he was in Israel and met a few of his vision's cousins, but Really right. not exposed so, at all. So, so dad learned in a litvish um, yeshiva, and was that a culture shock for you when you got married? Like, well, I know how it plays out now, but I'm wondering when you first got married, your father wore shreimel, your husband did not, and he did not do any of those things. It wasn't really cool. It was mm-hmm. culture. I wouldn't say culture shock because. Um, um, I had gone to Yavna, so I had been exposed to Litvaks <laughs> in high school. <laughs> and um, I, it was a little different. I never really knew literature people up close. Other, you know, I knew my teachers, the women. So the first time we were together for Shabbos, we got engaged. We went to Milwaukee for my grandparents' Milwaukee to meet my husband. 
And we were sitting around Friday afternoon, and I looked at my husband very innocently, Dad, my husband, and I said, when are you going to the mikvah? I didn't know any men didn't go to the mikvah Friday. He looked at me and said, Erev Yom Kippur? <laughs> so, so that was kind of shocking. As much as doing a mitzvah dance was very shocking to Daddy. He didn't know about it, and I just assumed he, everybody had it. I only went to, you know, he didn't know about it till that he was actually at his wedding. Right. Right? He didn't know about it. I just assumed everybody does because I only went to my family weddings. There weren't weddings like there are now, you know, all the time. Right. And right. I just assumed and I didn't realize that, you know, there was a misfortune. She was a little surprised. <laughs> um, and uh, cool. and then, you know, I had to get used to things like sitting down for kiddish and stuff like that. But otherwise, I wasn't, there wasn't too much culture shock because our values and goals are very similar. We're both very committed to Abbas's Torah and going to Kiruv and Torah being primary and, you know, mm. not uh, not keeping something in Hagem was not, uh, you know, and Daddy went along, as you well know, with my, when I make Pesach, not doing Brux. So <laughs> we never did right. Brux. <laughs> Out of he knew that right. it would be too weird for me. All right, and actually, your father really—I mean, I you know—I guess our audience doesn't know this, but my grandfather was nifter when I was in third grade, so about forty years ago now. Yeah. It was a long time ago. Yeah. But he really loved dad a lot. Yes, they like he really. They had a good time going at it with you know, whenever daddy would bring up something a little controversial or um, challenging. They were at it with the farm, you know? Yeah. So, okay. So I know that you taught English for a while and then stayed at home with your kids, certainly when we were young. Um, and then later on, it wasn't until I actually remember this conversation when you told me that you were going to go back and do your master's in counseling. I think I was in high school at the time, maybe. I think so. What happened was when we moved after daddy's years of Kolel, we moved to East Northport yeah. to do, which is a part of Long Island, which is very far out on the island, Suffolk County. We went to do Kiruv there and I had taught English all the years that we were in Queens. So then we decided that I was going to, we were going to have this open house more and invite people and try to do Kiruv and daddy was running the school. So I taught a little bit in the Hebrew Academy the first year and then we started having company. I didn't really work outside the home mm -hmm. other than having a lot to do with the couples that we met. And I started, I, I don't remember when my show with the women started. I started doing a show with the women from Huntington. Uh, I don't know how long after we, moved to Suffolk County, but I was very happy. You did that for years. I did that for years, but I was very happy to be able to be home with my children during those years. I also mm -hmm. developed a little bit of a jewelry business on the side. I don't know if you remember, just have a little creative outlet. I, I My in-laws were in jewelry, so I learned how to bead, and I sold it to some of the local stores. It was very part-time. It was just like a creative outlet so that I could. Um, but the way I really went to school was, when we were doing care with these couples, very often we found in our experience, the women became more interested and wanted to start doing things like keeping kosher and taras mishpacha before the men. And I was spending hours, hours on the phone or in person kind of counseling them. And daddy was running mm -hmm. the school. And, you know, when you run a school, you don't, 
you you get paid less and also you don't get paid a lot. So right. we needed a second income. And he said to me, you know, you spend so much time doing this. Why don't you just go back to school and get a degree in counseling, which I never really thought of doing because I you know, was an English major. But I figured, OK, why not? And so I went for my first master's because in counseling, because I thought at that time I finished my degree and I did it slowly over three years that I would get a job as a school counselor because then I would have the same hours with my children and I could be home before they got home from school if I worked in the public school system. So I did that. And um, after I finished that, I started working. I worked for two years in the public school system. I don't know if you remember as a counselor. Mm-hmm. And I was, the hours were great because in the high schools you finished 2.30 hours home before you guys came home from school. But okay. um, I had that very bad experience the second with anti-Semitism in the school. And I decided, no, um, I don't want to work in public school. So I went back for my postmaster's degree in marriage and family therapy. And then I started my private practice. Wow. Oh. So the years that you were home, um, when you were taking care of your family, did you ever feel... I don't know, unfulfilled or like you wanted to do something more intellectually stifled in any way? Never. I never felt intellectually stifled. I First of all, we were interacting with people and I was teaching and I was uh, always doing things. I love to read and learn on my own. I never felt intellectually stifled. I felt privileged that I could be home for my children. I never did. As a matter of fact, I think I told you that I, we had gone to a, a conference. Was it for the alumni of yeshiva and there was a round robin where we sat around introducing ourselves to other women and everybody went and one said i'm a special ed teacher i'm a speech therapist i'm a cpa and when i came to me i said i'm a, I'm a housewife and i was fine i just very happy to be a housewife and one of the women afterwards came over to me and said oh i felt so sorry for you i felt so sad that must have been uncomfortable i looked at her like she was crazy wow. i had no conflict so you- being a mother and a wife, that was the role that I believe was my primary role in life. Mm -hmm. And I was very happy to be able to do it without having the stress and pressure of compartmentalizing and working while many of my children were little. Of course, when I went to work, I still had younger children at home, but they're already in school and it was very different. So I often wonder about this because I think now there's a lot of pressure for women to be working. Um, I feel like a lot of women think of part of their identity, you know, from women even also, you know, in with regards to what their job is. And I guess I often wonder about that. Um, if like women, sometimes women will say that they feel discontent to be at home. They feel, you know, a little stifled. If that's just something that we've been trained to feel, you know, like, where's that coming from when, when, I mean, obviously I'm sure that there's certain women who really do want to do lots of professional things, but I think, I don't know, I, I'm not even sure what I'm asking, but I, I, sometimes I feel like that need for women to have a professional identity is almost like a cultural phenomenon rather than something that's intrinsic. It's definitely a cultural phenomenon. Uh, aside from the, the financial necessity now that it's almost impossible to manage on one income, but aside from that, it's definitely a cultural pressure and phenomena. And it started even back then in the 60s. My father, who really was prophetic in this, saw it starting to happen. He used to lecture that we're getting it wrong because the main venue for Jewish people is the home. It's not the workplace. 
and mm-hmm. he used to say, well, you need to get the men out of the workplace back into the home because that's primary, not the workplace, but our culture puts all the emphasis and, and the men, not the women. Right. He wasn't saying that the women have to no. go to the workplace. He said the, the men, men not meaning that they shouldn't work, but that their hearts and souls should not be in the workplace. You have to do that because you have to. But really, the primary Jewish foundation is the home where both men and women have to prioritize that as, as Mm-hmm. The most important, um, I mean, when you come to, when people come to a new community, Jewish people, the first thing they have to build is a mikvah for the home. Uh, no, schools for the children come first, actually. Right. Then right. mikvahs, shul is last. Mm-hmm. The public domain is last. But in our culture, right. your identi- identity is created by who, when people ask, who are you? It's, I'm a teacher, I'm a a lawyer, I'm a doctor. It's not who are you as a person. It's what do you do? That's where all the respect is. That's where the money is. That's where the power is, which is cultural. That's not Torah. And we, of course, absorb that. And as both men and women, we think that being in the home is secondary to that's the primary place where we should feel success and uh, enrichment Mm -hmm. and fulfillment which is just not a Torah thing. It's a cultural thing. And we, of course, absorbed it. So you don't feel any different now? Like, you know, like you said before, at the beginning of this podcast, you're a very successful marriage and family therapist. You've been at this point now in practice for over 25 years. Um, You're very professionally successful. Um, There's like no difference in your self-identity as a successful professional as it was when you were at home and calling yourself a homemaker. That was was a point of my story. I, I was very I was very happy doing that. I had role models of women, my mother and my grandmothers, who I respected so much, who were homemakers. Mm-hmm. And of course, they were Rebitsons and they were part of, you know, something bigger than, you know, just cooking and, and cleaning. But I think you could do that even if you're not a Rebitson. Raising a family, being part of a community, so much chesed that women do it boggles my mind. The kohos of women and what they do as far as just chesed and community things, and reaching out, those things are, to me, so much more significant than necessarily going to job. Every job has drudgery. I mean, being a doctor, I've had surgeons right. tell me how much drudgery is involved in that. So, of course, there is some drudgery in housework and repetitive, mindless things. So I'm a big advocate if you can get help, even if you have to forego you know, buying clothes, get help in the house if you can't, you know, get frustrated with the laundry that's never done and the dishes that are never done. But not as far as like defining my importance by what I do outside the home necessarily. It's another aspect mm-hmm. of being able to reach out and develop your talents or help the community or help people or help your family raise money but it shouldn't define who you are. All right. So um, I'm going to totally just switch tracks here because like I said, um, you were in marriage and family therapy for over 25 years. And I guess I'm wondering, and I was just thinking about this as you were talking, if you've noticed um, what trends you've noticed for the women that you see, the Jewish women that you see over the course of the 25 years that you've been in practice. with regards to either the the mental health or the, just the cultural situation. Well, overall, situation. I just see in the world at large, there's a lot more anxiety around. But as far as Jewish women go, 
I think the stress and pressure on them, because many of them have to work, or mm -hmm. many of them um, feel tremendous pressure because of the standards that are imposed on them to keep the level of, of hospitality or hosting, not necessarily so many people, but the, if you look at Jewish magazines, like the presentation and the kind of complexity of meals of people, women feel they have to prepare. They, it was very simple in my days. Nobody felt the pressure to have this fancy presentation that you see in the magazines today. Meals were more simple on Shabbos. You know, you made fish, soup, chicken, and a roast maybe, and two side dishes and a dessert, not uh, a, a cani salad for an appetizer and two meats and five side dishes and five salads and two desserts. And, and you had to post them on whatever, social media. And there's, <laughs> there, there was none of that. There was just none of that. And I feel so bad for women feeling that pressure. Not only do many of them work, but they have the pressure that when they do do things, they have to maintain the standard that is unrealistic and unnecessary. All right. Your sound is not great, Ma. I don't know if it's coming across on the podcast, so I don't know if you're moving away from nope. the phone. Nope. But I have the phone on my ear. Um, I hope it comes out clearly. Well, I hope it comes out clearly because I think what you just said is really important. And it's certainly perspective to think about how you grew up when there was so much less as far as a cultural infrastructure. And yet in a certain way, it sounds like being from was easier. In some ways it was. In some ways, you know, you felt different, but it was not as complex. And there was certainly no technology, no social media, no pressure like that, that there is now to keep up or see what other people are doing. None of that. And I think, I mean, having grandparents who are European who connected you to that world, also was probably very important. I don't know why I never thought about it really. Like, obviously, like I knew both your grandmothers. Obviously, when I knew Bobby from Pittsburgh, she was not well at all the few times yeah. that I went to visit her. Um, so I, I knew them, but I never really thought in the context of having grown up with grandparents who were, you know, grew up in Europe and who lived in pre-war Europe and brought that culture with them in their homes where you got to experience that. For, sh for sure, it gave us a certain continuity and legacy that made us very proud of who we were and appreciative of a world that is non-existent anymore. Yeah. Okay, so I am going to wrap this up. Um, I First of all, Ma, this was a really great conversation. Thank you so much. I'm going to ask you one last question, which maybe you already answered. I don't know. But I'm going to end all my conversations with hopefully more extraordinary Jewish women um, with this question, which is based on your experience in Kiev, which we didn't even spend that much time talking about. So I don't know, maybe you could come back for another conversation and we could talk about, could talk about some of the things we missed. But um Growing up in Denver, as you did, being in Kirov, being a professional, um, what do you think the biggest challenge facing Jewish women today is? Or if there was one thing that you can, that we're not talking about or not addressing, what, I would what do you say think the it greatest is? challenge to women is to not absorb this gender identity confusion and the cultural definition of women needing to be like men to be who they are and be proud of it, to go back to the Torah, to look at how the Torah truly views women as being so primary, 
so close and developed to God intuitively and um, uh, I don't know what the word is, but um, naturally and appreciate how respected women always have been in Torah so that we don't project on our role the Catholic or American or modern view of women and get confused so that we have real pride in who the Torah sees us. I think if we could do, if women could do that, a lot of these issues would just fade away. They wouldn't be issues for women. Wow. That was very well said. Amazing. Thank you so much. Okay. So, um, I feel like you sort of left us off with another topic that we could spend a lot of time talking about, but we'll wrap it up here. Um, I want to thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more um, content like this, interviews with extraordinary Jewish women, please email me at adeeperconversation120 at gmail.com. That's adeeperconversation120 at gmail.com. Mom, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Everybody else, thank you so much for listening. I'll meet you back here at the next podcast. Hey, so I hope you all enjoyed that episode. Um, It was so much fun to have. And as my daughter and I actually were leaving the studio, we were, of course, reflecting on what we said, what we wish we would have said, what we should have said. And one of the things that we were wondering about together was whether or not we were as positive as we could have been. We felt like we got a lot um, caught up in sort of, you know, kids these days kind of conversation. And we did mention something in passing that I wanted to reflect on a little bit. And I'd love to explore this more with my mother and my daughter in a later podcast. But um, Ya'al had mentioned that it was just a given that her friends were going to go and start their marriage sitting and learning. Whereas in my day, it was still kind of a fight and it was almost unheard of in my mother's day for that to happen. And it just sort of made me think about how far the Jewish world has come just with regards to sort of picking ourselves up from the ashes of the Holocaust and bringing Torah back to the primacy in the Jewish home where it belongs. And it's such a positive thing to see as the generation goes on, the chashivas for Torah, the value of Torah, the value of Torah learning that it has. And you see that it's growing and it's just such a mainstream thing now that couples just start off their marriage in a certain way. And it's such a, a positive thing. And so I wanted to reflect back on that and there were so many things I wanted to talk about. I want to talk about SNES and how that's changed and dating. And anyways, like I mentioned at the end of the podcast, if you have any suggestions or questions that you'd like to ask me, my mom, my daughter, and you'd like to see a part two of this episode, please be in touch with me at a deeper conversation, 120 at gmail.com. Consider sponsoring an episode or becoming a monthly donator at maverickpodcasting.com. Go to my page, click on, click on the link, click on the heart symbol, and scroll down to my name. Um, Anyways, that is it for this episode of A Deeper Conversation, and I will meet you all back here in the next episode.